If you missed the first episode of this second season of Catalyst, go back and listen. If you're caught up, here's where we left off. A couple of pops and I turned around and, you know, I was, I got shot in the, the chin. And I reached up and, you know, it was, my hand was, you know, full of blood. You know, there were people screaming and uh, just, it was chaos. I can remember seeing bodies laying right next to me. My friend Roger um, actually took a pool cue and, and I guess cleared a couple of tables running to the door and hit him, uh, I, I believe it was twice, with the cue. I heard about people subduing the shooter yes. with the pool cue. Yes. And of course, your son pushed a woman out of the gunfire. I was so proud of that boy, you know, to save somebody. You know, his death wasn't in pain. The shooting at the Starburst Lounge would remain El Paso's deadliest for nearly 40 years. Five people died, and three others were wounded. The deaths are what stick with you. Including Phil Sell, who was 19 and out with friends that night back in 1980. I believe wholeheartedly that had somebody been there trained, that lives could have been saved. Today, the bar is gone, an abandoned car wash sits in its place. And a new shooting overshadows what happened there. You know, it was one of the largest mass shootings in the United States at the time. It's like the story just died. We haven't heard it anywhere. Our hope by sharing stories yes. like this that yes. people don't talk about anymore is to let people know that this isn't just a new problem that mm -hmm. we're just now hearing about. This has been happening for decades. Yes. And something needs to be done about it now. Absolutely. I kind of feel that way. Just I'm a few months before we sat down with Phil nobody. and his wife Margie in their living room, another gunman targeted the city. This time at a Walmart. I'm seeing such extraordinary strength from the victims themselves, from their families, and from a community. 22 people died and 24 were injured back on August 3rd, 2019. It has a nexus at this point in time to a hate crime. We're in this together. El Paso's in it together. Everybody in El Paso that I know of got an all call of that emergency broadcast system that there was an active shooter. So we were watching this on TV and then Dylan called. He was actually in Walmart when he called me to let me know he was okay. Dylan is their youngest son, an El Paso firefighter. And he was one of the first crews that were dispatched to the scene. The dead were still, they were all still in there and he saw everything. What's it like for you as a wife and a mother to have a family that was touched by mass violence twice. Well, it's been really hard. My son and my husband were both involved in the two largest shootings in El Paso. What are the chances? What are the odds? So it's sad that I have two, you know, members going through that. So as a mom, you know, I was just terrified for him. You know, real tough to unsee. He's, he's had some issues, so that's been hard. I, I've talked to him at length about it, particularly about trying to sleep. 
I, I don't have the dreams anymore, and eventually he won't have the, the dreams, hopefully, either. Phil said it took him years to move past the trauma, and some things will never change. I actually carry a, a tourniquet every single day, everywhere I go. You know, just in case that that situation arises again. Uh, I carry a wallet in my left pocket and a tourniquet and some uh, quick clot in my other back pocket. Just having the knowledge to stop a bleed is, is important. And I wholeheartedly agree that that training should be provided. That's the kind of knowledge that should be available to everybody. I'm here to tell you that you have absolutely no idea how you're going to react in a situation like that until it happens to you. There's, you, you can tell yourself you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. But until the minute that it's, the second that it's happening, you have no idea how you're going to react. The only thing you can do is prepare. This one's not going to be forgotten. The state of Texas is going to work side by side with the city of El Paso and with all of these victims. That's the thought coming out of the Texas governor's office these days, too. People need to be prepared. We want to ensure that Texas is going to be as safe as possible for everybody in this state. And it means we're going to have to do more so that everyone knows. They can go shopping or they can go anywhere. They and their families will be safe. Since 2017, the state has endured four of its worst mass shootings ever. A church in Sutherland Springs. Some don't want to step foot in this building again, and, and others said, I need to. And we wanted to make it where they could come and mourn in their own way. A school in Santa Fe. It's just like surreal, kind of. It's just like the unimaginable, and it happened. And just weeks after the latest El Paso attack, another shooting in the Midland Odessa area. The shooter was um, pulled over on the interstate uh, by a DPS officer. That's when he shot the officer and then took off and started shooting randomly. This is going to be an ongoing process. Governor Greg Abbott's held roundtables, studied the problem, and in recent weeks issued executive orders to lawmakers and state agencies. We have in place a working model that is good, but we know that we need to both expand and improve upon those efforts. We reached out to his office for an interview multiple times, but never heard back. In fact, when we requested a copy of any communications between him and his staff about the interview, they asked the attorney general to weigh in to see if they had to share that with us. That decision is pending. While we wait, we decided to look at part of the governor's plan already underway, training for civilians to better respond during an active shooter event, specifically more of what's happening at Texas State University at a place called Alert. ALERT stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training. So the program was started uh, right after Columbine in response to how first officers on scene were trained and basically teaches first responding officers how to quickly arrive on scene, size up the situation, and engage and stop any active threat. They're going to run to that doorway. As they get to the doorway, they're coming to warn everyone that there's a shooter inside the building. Where we are right now is a simulation building. The facilities here are designed around training that is so realistic and so seemingly dangerous as to tap into the part of the brain that triggers that stress response. It's a mock school. Uh, we can change it up to be more like an office. 
but it's a very large building, wide hallways, lots of rooms, multiple floors, stairwells. Alert trainers led us to the second floor, where a class of law enforcement officers was preparing for a drill. We have simulated gunfire, we have uh, weapons that shoot uh, marking cartridges, so it hits a person, it hurts, it lets you know that you've been shot. And when that happens, there's a part of the brain that takes over that's more survival oriented and it doesn't think very clearly, it doesn't hear very well, it doesn't see very well, it just does whatever it needs to do in order to survive that, that situation. Where we come in as trainers is to coach people through those effects of stress, to pick a right choice, to take a correct action, um, and to be calm under pressure, to be able to make better, more concise, precise, and effective decisions. Get your head out of the way. Number one, if at all possible, avoid the event entirely. If the gunfire is occurring in a different hallway, I want you to evacuate. If they can't evacuate, it's too close to them, there's, the exits aren't available, but I want you to deny entry. I want you to barricade in place. Don't let the gunman into where you are. They're looking for targets of opportunity. If it's happening far away, you can get away. If it's down the hall, and you're in a room and you can't get out, close the door and lock it, turn the lights out, get away from the door. If you can barricade that in place, that shooter's probably not gonna spend a lot of time on your doorway. He's gonna go look for a softer target. Come with me, come with me, come with me, come with me, come with me. If it's occurring in your immediate proximity, we're all standing here together and the active shooter begins right here, now my response is gonna to be to defend myself. And we give him some fundamental tools to do that about attacking the gun and attacking the gunman, some ways to make that happen and remove the threat. Our job is just to make sure that everyone is as prepared as they can be and can operate as well as expected under extremely adverse and chaotic situations. I've got a gunshot wound here. What makes this different than other similar training across the U.S.? To start, it's not just about escaping or defending yourself. In recent years, they've incorporated medical intervention. I'll start working on this one. Somebody start raking him. Not only are we going to tell you what to do when the shooter is shooting, but we're gonna tell you what to do in the aftermath of the shooting. I'm gonna put a tourniquet on. I'm gonna put on a, a chest seal. I'm gonna do a wound pack. Hey, sir, can you hear me, can you hear me? A femoral bleed on average is only about two minutes before the person bleeds out. The average response time for a police officer is three. The average response time for EMS across the nation is anywhere from seven to 11 minutes. We got help coming. So if you're waiting on a first responder to come and save this situation, uh, time's not going to allow it. It's just the clock is ticking. Did you call 911? Alert staff says it would be impossible to train everyone at this specialized site. They do get funding from the state and federal government, but to maximize resources, most of the training takes place across the nation, either online or alert teams traveling to other cities, or like these police officers in this scenario, a train the trainer approach. Good job. All right, guys, go ahead. Index, index, index. What? the law enforcement officers learned in this setting today, they can go back to their homes and hopefully teach that to citizens to be That's able to exactly respond. exactly what we're looking for. We want them to go to, is we get all the phone calls from the churches and the schools and the hospitals and the business community. What can we do for an active shooter scene? How many people do you believe have gone through the civilian response training? Nationally, last I'd heard, a little over 400,000. Yeah, there's over 400,000 nationally. Who are these civilians that are taking these classes and getting trained? People that are at businesses, do they work at hospitals, at schools, what? All of the above. All of the above. Anybody that's interested personally can take it. 
The civilian response training is based on real-life events, two decades of mass attacks in the U.S., and data the FBI has collected on how those attacks ended. We know how these events actually unfold and how the training can address them. So this is a very evidence-based program. It is, yeah. We want to make sure that our program is based on what actually happens, so we're not just going out and training and saying, hypothetically, something could happen. Instead, we look at what has unfolded over this 19-year period where we have now close to 300 active shooter events, and we can look at that aggregate data and show this is how these unfold. This is how civilians can help. Out of all the events that have happened, about half of them end before law enforcement arrive on the scene. And of those, the attacker either stops themselves or the civilian's able to stop them. When we use the term citizen response, a lot of people automatically assume that's getting citizens guns, but that's not what it's always about. It's not about that. It's not to say that they can't or shouldn't either. I mean, it's your legal right in a lot of states. So in the data that we have for the active attacks, there's been 50 events that the civilians have actually stopped the attacker. 10 of those, they've shot them with a firearm, and then 40 of them, they physically subdued them in some manner. Like with their hands? With their hands, tackling them, getting them to the ground, pinning them down until law enforcement arrived to, to take them away. Have you heard directly from any citizens that have had this training that have said, I believe when I was in a situation like this in real life, this helped save me and people around me? Absolutely, so we've had feedback from many instances. In Amarillo, Texas, um, there was an employee of a, of a business that was given this uh, civilian response training by the local police department. Well, six weeks later, she is at the uh, Route 91 festival in Vegas. And when the unthinkable starts to happen around her, she's with her family and she starts thinking of this training and looking for ways to get the family out of there. Now, the closest route out was not the way to go because that's where more people were getting shot and falling. So she looked at another exit that seemed better, but farther, and she ushered her family out to safety. She attributed her clarity of thinking and, and her ability to stay calm under pressure with just that one training that she had been through. expect that the legislature will probably be talking about allocating more money to this program in the future? We hope that's the case and because we know the demand far exceeds the supply or the, the funding that we get right now. You are having to say no sometimes. Absolutely. It's very unfortunate that we have to say not yet. We, we don't want to say no, but it, it is very often that we have to say not yet because we're out of funding um, and the demand does not stop. Since Alert launched in 2002, more than 2,100 Texas agencies have gone through the training, but 162 others are on a wait list. Nationwide, that number grows to 900. There's a lot of people that are screaming for it, and there are people that are ready to go right now. It's important. Um, it's, it's lives. It's, it's people. And if that's not important enough for us to sit down and have a mature, real, visceral conversation and to invest in, 
then I don't know what we're doing. I feel the challenge is on us to talk to our colleagues to figure out what we can get done. That's the hope with a couple of newly formed legislative committees on mass violence prevention and community safety. Some of the members are from the cities under attack in recent years. Well, I think that the governor has instructed us to build consensus around issues. Like El Paso State Representative Joe Moody. You know, I'm very encouraged with where the conversation is going, that I think we can actually get some some things that make El Paso safer, but also the state of Texas. Part of what the governor has proposed is making sure that people that might be faced with an active shooter situation know how to react. I think it's a reality. Uh, I think it's I think it's sad that those are the types of measures that we have gotten to. But it, to not do that would be ignoring the reality that we live in today. We cannot let this moment, this opportunity to actually make safer communities, make a safer state, pass us by. But building that consensus on such a long-standing, divisive problem won't be easy, that's clear, as Moody and his fellow legislators start holding emotional hearings across the state. Next time. We've lost friends, family members, and co-workers from these acts of mass violence. The goal was to stop violent criminals before they commit mass murders. Now that is, as, as you've explained, a very complicated process. One minute this family, this beautiful, innocent family, was enjoying a Saturday afternoon. The next minute, they were living in a virtual war zone. My response to all of these senseless murders is don't take away my right to defend myself. Catalyst is reported, produced, and edited by me, Josh Hinkle, along with David Barrer, Ben Freeberg, and Arzo Dost. Digital support for this episode comes from Dax Dobbs, Eric Henriksen, Matt Mitchell, Robert Sims, and Kate Winkle. KXAN's news director is Chad Cross, and its vice president and general manager is Eric Glassberg. Music